This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Today I want to talk about grammar, how we use and are confused by nouns, adjectives, and verbs. And if you think this doesn't have anything to do with Zen practice, consider that when Shakyamuni had his great enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, we could imagine him proclaiming at that moment of insight, there are no such thing as nouns. I'll come back to that. But let's start with a simple example, a sentence. I built a beautiful house. Now, we all know the word I is very complicated, so I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to stick with the simple words, built, beautiful, and house. And house looks like an example of a pretty straightforward noun, a word to describe a thing or an object that we see sitting there in the landscape, we recognize and we know what it is. (coughs) But when we talk about my building the house, we draw attention to the fact that it has not been there forever, since the beginning of time. It has a history. It was put together from part by in parts by a builder. And so let's imagine we uh, build a house the old-fashioned way by sawing up lumber and making timbers and boards, nail them together to make a, a frame and walls and roof and floor. We see, as we look at that process, that the single thing that we call the house, uh, in fact, is made up of hundreds, if not thousands, of other things, uh, pieces of wood and nails and so forth and so on. And that it's really just a matter of description or perspective about whether you are going to call what you're looking at one thing or a thousand things, a house or a collection of uh, all the pieces that went together to, to make it up. And once it's 
built and sitting in the landscape, how do you know it's a house? If you saw a whole crowd of people suddenly come together in it and one person dragged a goat into a corner, cut its throat, set a few pieces of it on fire, lit some incense, and started chanting, you might say, oh, wait a minute, I made a mistake. I thought this was a house, but it looks like it's some kind of temple. Or if the person killed the goat, cut it up to pieces, put it in a pot, made lots of stew, and ladled it out to all the people who had come, you might say, oh, I made a mistake. I thought this was a house, but it looks more like a restaurant. We call it a house not just by virtue of its structure, but by virtue of its use when we see that it's something that has been built for someone to live in. So the thingness, the nounness of house is actually inseparable from the whole activity and function uh, that actually defines it. Now I said, uh, I built a beautiful house. What about that word beautiful? Where, do, where is the beauty of the house? Is it in the design? Is it in the color and the shape? Or is the beauty a thought or feeling I'm having in my, my mind about the house? Where is the beauty located? Buddha had a great insight about the nature of nouns. In the, in the West, we've spent a lot of time uh, arguing and perhaps confused by the nature of adjectives. Uh, starting with uh, Plato, there's been a strong tendency to say When I call a house beautiful, it's because it has the quality of beauty about it, and that that beauty has its own separate existence in reality, apart from either the house or my feelings about the house. Just like uh, Plato might say, if we walk down 74th Street, and count out nine houses in a row, the number nine has an existence completely real and separate from the houses being counted, or even the activity of counting. They perform this particular maneuver on a lot of important words. Uh, Good was one of his favorites. Uh, If I say some Buddy is a good surgeon, uh, or that was a really uh, 
good act of kindness or a really good birthday cake, that all of them, we can call all of them good because they partake and share in a quality of goodness that exists apart from any individual example of it. And so for Plato and for a lot of Western philosophy for a long time, people got preoccupied with saying, how do we define abstract abstractions like good, beautiful, true, number, love, separate from any of their individual examples. Now, Buddhism, in some ways, wants to cut through a lot of that confusion and say that all sorts of judgments that we have about things, all those adjectives, whether it's good, true, or beautiful, our thoughts that's, that we're having and that those thoughts are passing through somebody's mind and they all come and go. And then none of these abstractions have any reality apart from thought. And that part of what we do in our practice is to allow ourselves to see how we create abstractions out of, ver- out of very specific things and that how the things themselves are abstractions that we create in the midst of constant change. See, Buddha basically said all dharmas, all things are like that house in that it has no singular unchanging nature. It's built, it's built or composed of thousands of objects arranged a certain way over a certain period of time. And while all the lumber and nails and stuff is stacked into a corner, it's just a bunch of aggregates for a certain period of time, they all come together. They serve a, for a certain function. We take a snapshot at that moment. We call it a house. Time passes. The roof falls in. The walls rot. Things fall apart. People disassemble the remains. And it goes back to just being a collection of pieces and is no longer a house. Basically, Buddha's insight is that everything is like that. (coughs) Everything is subject to change. Everything is a temporary aggregate of other things that 
at one point or another we give a name to as if it had a permanent existence or nature but it's just one moment, one frame in the movie that we've isolated and given a, a name to and made it into a noun. So in general, Buddhism practice of meditation is about the deconstruction of nouns into verbs. Uh, the deconstruction of abstractions into thoughts and judgments and the awareness of how who we are and what this world is is an ongoing process not a collection of objects on the table but nobody's perfect and uh, even good Buddhists get mixed up about grammar and I think that happens uh, with words um, like awareness. That's a good one. <laughs> um, what is that? What is that noun, awareness? Well, if we deconstruct it the way we do most nouns, we could say someone is engaged in an activity or process of being aware. And being aware is being aware of something in time, moment after moment. But like Plato, even Buddhists fall into the temptation of taking... something that is a, uh, a process and turning it into an abstract noun. So we go from, I think the move starts with meditation is a practice of being aware moment after moment to meditation is a practice of cultivating awareness. Sounds like it's the same thing, but you just shifted from verb to noun and you're already in trouble because now we're we're cultivating awareness what is that? well the awareness then becomes something separate from what we're aware of and awareness suddenly gets capitalized and be, I hear it described as, you know, things like objectless, luminous consciousness. Uh, we have a, we cultivate a state of silent inner illumination in which there is no object of consciousness, but only pure consciousness itself. Right? Since all of these things come about because we go from being conscious of to consciousness, from aware to awareness, we start moving back into this realm of uh, abstract nouns. And almost always one good hint is that when this happens, 
you start getting capital letters put in. <laughs> Every time you see capital letters, it gets suspicious. Now, the dilemma here, it's... Uh, the problem really is that we've gone from a, a description of an activity into a, a realm that suddenly has gotten abstract and spiritual and mystical. And honestly, I think is best characterized in a technical sense uh, by Harry Frankfurt, uh, who called this sort of thing bullshit. <laughs> Uh, and, and technically uh, bullshit doesn't mean something that's false it means something that is floated free of the world of true and falseness right? that it, it exists in a realm where there's nothing you can say to argue is this true or it's false it's, it's an assertion in its own right that is just proclaimed by authority uh, and it helps if you have either a bald head, a long white beard, or a robe when you make proclamations about capital C awareness or consciousness. Um, I think a lot of people spend a great deal of time in practice trying to cultivate states of mind cultivate mean, try to bring about hold on to that they identify with these abstractions uh, and it's certainly the case that we have all sorts of odd states of consciousness go through our head when we sit some of which are quite lovely it's quite blissful sometimes our mind seems empty silent and calm Right? And when our head is emptiness, when our head is empty, does that mean we've suddenly become in contact with capital E emptiness? Right? It's emptiness, I think, is a way sort of the most tragic of the abstractions. Because before it got its capital letter, it meant precisely that things had no unchanging nature. Everything was empty of a pure or permanent <coughs> essence. That's what Buddha meant by saying all dharmas are empty. But somebody got a hold of that word, put a capital letter on the front of it, and turned it into a pure unchanging essence of emptiness, right? It's... Uh, and, and you can read lots of perfectly seem respectable people, including teachers, who sort of think that they're, they get into a state of consciousness where they feel the emptiness of things, whatever the F that means, right? Um, <laughs> now, None of this is to say we should not cultivate or value certain states of consciousness. You know, it's, uh, 
not a bad thing to cultivate in the sense of train yourself in the habit of being kind or compassionate or open-minded or reasonable or quiet uh, or concentrated. All these things are very valuable fruits of a discipline of meditation. But we should try our best to leave it at that level. Uh, beware of capitalizations, of thinking that when you're engaged, experiencing one of these states, that means that you've plugged into a big abstraction in the sky that in, uh, in some way embodies it or fuels it. Koans generally attempt to correct our grammar. Uh, but they have an uphill battle. This tendency seems to be very ingrained in what it is to be human and use language, uh, whether in classical Greece or uh, classical India. Uh, but we try a few simple, almost paradoxical kinds of exercises, which are called koans, to help us sort some of this out. Uh, one of the most basic koans that lots of people were given was a, what was precisely this koan of grammar? Uh, one might ask, be asked, who hears? Yeah. Who hears? We listen to sounds. We all can hear the sounds of the world. Who is hearing? You can do the same thing with sight and say, who sees? And I suppose we could do the same thing with compassion and ask, who cares? <laughs> 